Hi, my name is Aisha Zengin. And I'm Alex Rodriguez, and welcome back to another episode of Bone Group Banter. As always, we're here to discuss, debate, and share all things musculoskeletal. But first, the news. What's making research news this week, Aisha? So our first headline is, Neuron creation in brain's memory centre stops after childhood. Every day, the human hippocampus, which is a brain region involved in learning and memory, creates hundreds of new nerve cells, called neurons, or so scientists thought. Now results from a study could upend this long-standing idea. A team of researchers has found that the birth of neurons in this region seems to stop once we become adults. A few years ago, the group looked at a well-preserved adult brain sample and spotted a few young neurons in several regions, but none in the hippocampus. So they decided to analyse hippocampus samples from dozens of donors ranging from fetuses, which are like babies, to people in their 60s and 70s. They concluded that the number of new hippocampal neurons starts to dwindle after birth and drops to near zero in adulthood. Mm. The results published in Nature on the 7th of March are already raising controversy. Yeah, definitely. Our second headline is a bit more interesting, I think. Why that tattoo is yours for life. Hey? Immune cells transfer bits of pigment to their neighbours when they die. Tattoos last a lifetime. Now experiments with tattooed mice. Yes, you heard that right. Tattooed mice <laughs> might explain why immune cells called macrophages recycle dark pigments, keeping the ink in place. Macrophages in the skin eat foreign material, including bits of tattoo ink, which the cells then store internally. Many scientists had thought that the immune cell's extreme longevity explains why tattoos don't disappear. However, researchers tattooed bright green bands on the tails of mice, <laughs> hipster mice, and then three weeks later killed the macrophages that had ingested the ink. As the cells died, they released the pigments which were readily taken up by neighbouring macrophages. This pigment recycling probably helps tattoos to persist, the authors say, although they add that a few long-lived macrophages packed with pigments might contribute to tattoos' permanence. <laughs> <laughs> Very interesting. So in today's episode, we'll be asking ourselves the question, to be BQ or not to be BQ? <laughs> what are the effects of protein on bone health? good old Aussie barbecue there is a lot of meat. We all love a good steak and a snag. These foods contain protein. Protein has both positive and negative effects on calcium balance and the net effect of dietary protein on bone mass and fracture risk may be dependent on the dietary calcium intake. Protein and calcium are major components of bone tissue. By weight, bone tissue is 70% minerals, this is the calcium bits that, that we're talking about, 8% water, and a whopping 22% protein. Bone undergoes continuous remodeling, as we've outlined in many, many of our podcasts, and an ad adequate supply of mineral and amino acid substrate, the stuff that's needed to make uh, bone, is needed to support the formation phase of bone remodeling. In addition to their passive roles as a substrate for bone formation, Dietary calcium and protein play active roles in ongoing bone metabolism. 
So an inadequate intake of calcium results in a sequential reduction in the circulating calcium concentration and an increase in the parathyroid hormone secretion, or PTH. PTH normalizes the circulating calcium concentration by promoting bone resorption, and this happens by reducing the calcium that's excreted from the kidney and indirectly by stimulating the intestinal calcium absorption. So small increases in this hormone, PTH, over time that results from an inadequate dietary calcium and or vitamin D intake causes a chronic increase in bone turnover and a steady loss of bone mass, both of which increases the risk of fracture. Higher calcium, higher calcium intakes, I should say, results in more absorbed calcium, which may help offset the urine losses uh, caused by dietary protein. Calcium, by lowering the turnover rate, may also reduce the adverse effects of mild acidosis, so when your blood's becoming too acidic on bone resorption. Um, in fact, an observational study by Meyer and colleagues suggests that the calcium intake may influence the impact of dietary protein on the skeleton. In that study, neither calcium intake nor protein intake from non-dairy animal sources was associated with the incidence of hip fracture. However, people with the combination of low calcium intake and high protein intake were at approximately double the risk of hip fracture compared with the other people in the study. Mm. Dietary protein has long been known to increase kidney calcium excretion. Dietary protein of both animal and plant origin, so think about beans and other legumes, leads to endogenous uh, acid production, so acid production done internally, and diet-induced diet low-grade metabolic acidosis, so like I was saying about uh, too much acid, I guess, in the blood, causing hypercalciuria, which in other words means lots of calcium getting excreted um, when you go to the toilet by several mechanisms. These include decreasing renal tubular absorption, which is a fancy name for your kidneys taking up more calcium as the blood passes through, increasing cell-mediated bone resorption, that's what Aisha was outlining um, above about taking calcium away from bones, and direct physiochemical dissolution of bones. When your blood gets too acidic, the actual uh, uh, minerals in the bone just sort of leave the bone and enter circulation. So um, let's have a look at what some of the studies out there have shown. So among observational studies, evidence for associations between protein intake and bone mass or fracture rates is mixed and includes positive, negative, and no associations. There you go. <laughs> for example, dietary protein and total hip bone mineral density were positively associated in postmenopausal women in the NHANES survey, which is a large study based in the US with thousands and thousands of people. The association persisted in a subset of women with calcium intakes greater than 800 milligrams per day. But in another study by Hanan and colleagues found that higher protein intake, both total and animal proteins, was associated with favorable four-year changes in bone mineral density at the femoral neck, so in, in the hip, and spine of elderly community-dwelling men and women, so in other words, older healthy people. And these subjects consumed an average of 68 grams of protein and 800 milligrams of calcium a day, so around about the 
the sort of average of what we want. Well, in contrast, in the Nurses' Health Study, Feskanich and colleagues found no association between protein intake and risk of hip fracture, but identified a significant 25% higher in risk of forearm fracture in women consuming more than 80 grams per day compared with those consuming less than 51 grams per day. The nurse's mean calcium intake was 720 milligrams per day. So these reports do not allow an in-depth examination of a potential influence of calcium on the association between dietary protein and bone mineral density and may explain why there's all these different um, results from the studies. Exactly. I mean, we could go, you know, rattle off a whole different list of association studies of yes and no, as you said before. But what about protein intervention studies, actually making people uh, uh, get more protein? So in a randomized study of 59 patients, a a dietary um, supplement containing 20 grams of protein and 500 milligrams of calcium taken daily for only four weeks improved the clinical course of these patients over the following six months. That's quite, quite impressive. Notably, the patients in the control group, so those that didn't get these, um, the, the, the supplements, had a low mean calcium intake of 400 milligrams a day and a low mean protein intake of 32 milligrams a day. So it may not be directly comparable. So we've, we've told you a bit about the positive and the, like, and the negative studies. So what should you do? Well, the literature suggests that the impact of dietary protein on the skeleton appears to be favourable in older people who are meeting their dietary calcium requirements, requirements, but not in those with lower calcium intakes. The optimal protein intake for bone health in the elderly needs to be determined, and this determination should be made in people who are meeting the dietary calcium requirement. So obviously, as we've come to learn in many of these different topics uh, related to the skeleton, a lot more research needs to be uh, done in this area. But what we'd like you to take away uh, from today is that protein, which you might associate with you know, bodybuilders and, you know, people trying to get, uh, get really fit. Is gym also, junkies. Yeah, gym junkies <laughs> is also very important for your bone health as well. And there seems to be an interplay between how much calcium you're getting as well as um, your protein intake. And that the clinical study seems to show both positive, negative, and sometimes no, no effect at all of protein on bone. Right, so that's all we've got time for today. Remember to subscribe to our podcast and get in touch via Twitter or email if you have any questions. Thanks for your time and see you next week. See you later.